Hey, good to see all of you today. Welcome, welcome, welcome here to South Fellowship. So good to be with you. Um, we're going to uh, continue our series here in the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, last week, uh, uh, um, Larry get us kind of a panoramic view of chapter one. Uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give us a snapshot of a particular element within chapter two. We're just going to walk through verses 13 through 17 together. Uh, before we do that, I was uh, going to share with you, uh, I used to be on staff at a church years and years and years ago where, to be honest with you, the worship wasn't very good. And I used to sit in the front row waiting to preach and going, Oh, Lord, help me save the service. But we never have to do that here at South. Let's give the worship team a huge hand. Yeah. They are awesome. Uh, before we look at this text out of Mark 2, I'm going to ask you if you'd join your hearts together with me in prayer. Father, thanks so much for your provision, your care, and your grace in our lives. Lord, we want to thank you for the salvation that you've provided for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the grace and the guidance you give us every day. Lord, I thank you for your church. Uh, when she's filled with your spirit, she is the hope of the world. I thank you so much for self-fellowship, the ministry that this church has in this community, in this city, and around the world. Lord, I thank you for every person that's here today, and I thank you that I have the privilege to worship here and now to share from your scripture. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, we ask now that by your grace and your spirit, you would show us who you are, what you're about, and what that means for us. Father, we ask all of this in the great and the glorious name of Jesus, and for our sake, amen. This is Notre Dame Cathedral, which, according to the best records that we know, was uh, begun to be constructed somewhere between the years 1160 and 1163. Uh, as you know, it's one of the most famous buildings in the world, and it took over 200 years to build. Uh, of greater significance, it served for over eight centuries as one of the finest examples of Gothic medieval architecture ever devised and built. It's known the world around, and as you can see, it's an incredibly beautiful construction. But uh, last April, uh, there was a section on the interior of the cathedral that caught fire. It undermined the infrastructure, and it caused the majestic spire to clump, collapse and crumble in a ruin. When Notre Dame was built, it was known for its beauty and its majesty and its ministry, and it made it kind of the wonder of, of all of Europe, and in many, many ways, the wonder of the world. But now, after catastrophe... It needs to be saved. It needs to be restored. It needs to be made right. You know, as I was thinking about it, that serves as a metaphor for humanity today. It serves as a metaphor for the human condition. It serves as a metaphor for you and for me. See, a long time ago, there were these two beautiful, majestic creatures 
they were named Adam and Eve, and they lived in a paradise called Eden. And there they walked and talked freely with each other and with God, and it was a beautiful, fantastic, majestic setting. But then eventually, they chose to disobey God. They sinned. And consequently, now like Notre Dame, we find ourselves in ruin. All of us are the descendants of Adam and Eve. All of us here have their poison blood flowing through our veins. All of us here, as the Bible said, have sinned and fallen way, way, way short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're hurt. We're broken. We're only a shadow of what our Heavenly Father created us to be. I like the way the great pastor and theologian Fleming Rutledge put it in her incredible book on the crucifixion. She says, we are all a lot worse off than we think we are. So given that reality, we need to be saved. We need to be restored. We need to be made right. But only something, or more precisely, only someone really, really powerful and really, really loving can accomplish that. Fortunately, there is such a person. His name is Jesus, and we're told all about him in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Most scholars argue that Mark was a close associate of the Apostle Peter, and so his Gospel, this biographical account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection from the dead, it's based on Peter's eyewitness account of his experience with the Savior. Now, when we come to chapter 2, we see in the first few verses of this chapter that Mark tells us that Jesus had recently returned to the city of Capernaum following his itinerant ministry of preaching the kingdom of God throughout that northern region of Israel that was known as Galilee. And because the city of Capernaum sat right next to the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus apparently liked to use that location, both the city and the setting by the sea, as a regular venue for his teaching and his ministry. Uh, That's what we see in verses 13 and 14. Look at what Mark tells us. He says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Uh, Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, Levi, who was also probably known as Matthew, was a tax collector who worked in and around the city of Capernaum. Uh, He probably knew Jesus actually fairly well because Jesus would be coming and going on a regular basis in and out of the city, and he would have encountered Levi slash Matthew on a regular basis. Now, if you've been in church world for a while, or you've studied the New Testament in detail, you know that tax collectors were at the very bottom of the social rung in ancient Israel. And the reason why is because they worked against their own people, and they worked for the Roman imperial administration. See, here's how the tax collecting system worked. The Romans would go into a province, and they would conquer it. And then they would put out an advertisement and they'd say that anybody who wants to work for us and collect taxes can come in and make application. And then what the Romans would do is they'd have people fill out applications and then they'd say, here's what you need to do for us in this province. 
you need to collect this amount of taxes. And then anything on top of that that you collect, you can keep for yourself. Well, you can tell by a system like that. That was made for greed and corruption and oppression. And tax collectors throughout the empire came to personify that. Uh, The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that tax collectors were so despised throughout the empire because none of them were known for having any sense of honor, any sense of decency, that he heard a story of one town where there was one tax collector who was somewhat honorable. And as a result, that town built a statue as recognition of that guy's somewhat honorable practices. What we need to know as it relates to Israel is this. When a Jew became a tax collector for Rome, he immediately became a social outcast. He was a traitor to his race. He was a traitor to his nation. He was a traitor to everybody in his village. He was forever disqualified to serve as a judge or a witness in court. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. He was a disgrace. And that extended even to his family. Let me do the best I can to contemporize this a little bit so that we'll get a feel for what Mark is communicating here about this tax collector, Levi. Tax collectors were the ancient equivalents of contemporary drug dealers who make a lot of money peddling crack cocaine and destroying the lives of lots and lots of people in the process. They were really, really bad guys. They were the worst of the worst. They were quite literally the scum of the earth. And what's so amazing about Jesus is he calls this tax-collecting sinner named Levi to follow as one of his disciples. And the reason he does that is so that Levi could be transformed into the type of person that God originally intended him to be. Friends, this is where we need to understand the importance of the word that's used here, follow. It's used here twice just in this verse. But it's used a number of times throughout the New Testament, and it almost always describes the action of a man or a woman who's answering Jesus' call to receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, and then redirect their lives into following exactly how Jesus lived. And see, over time, and I want to stress this, over time, over time, as we follow Jesus, we will be transformed by his grace. This is the Pieta which is one of the finest works of art ever created in Western civilization. Uh, It was created by the great genius Michelangelo. It's known the world around because of its majesty, its beauty, its sculpture. It's the sculpture of Mary holding the broken dead body of her son Jesus after they took him down from the cross. A few years back, there was this radical fanatic Italian nationalist And he broke into the place where the Pieta is kept. And he took a hammer and he just beat it all to crud. He broke it into all kinds of pieces before he was eventually subdued and then arrested. So what the Vatican did was they hired a group of artists to repair the Pieta. And they were able to repair it and put it back to mint condition because they had a whole bunch of pictures that they could use to see exactly how Michelangelo had originally made it to be. 
friends. You and I know this. We all know what sin's done in our lives and in the world around us. We know how tangled we can be at times. We know how tangled our culture and the world can be. But Mark wants us to know, and this is what I want us to get, that Jesus is all about transformation. And he's come to inaugurate a kingdom centered in the powerful grace of God, which not only provides forgiveness of sins, but over time, over time, redeems our raggedness and transforms us as we follow him. That's true for you. That's true for me. That's true of anybody who follows Jesus. And Jesus wants to extend that to others as well. Look at verse 15. While he, that is Jesus, was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. For friends, culturally, for Jesus to go to this dinner party that was populated by these people, these scum of the earth people, these tax collectors, these sinners, that was radical. That was theologically provocative. See, religious types of people, especially rabbis like Jesus, they weren't supposed to hang around tax collectors, sinners, people like that. But as a number of commentators have pointed out, when Jesus sat down to eat with them, it was a visible sign of fellowship, acceptance, grace, and forgiveness. Uh, This is C.H. Dodd. He was one of the preeminent New Testament scholars of the 20th century. It's said that he had the entire New Testament memorized in Greek. And here's his comment on this text. Jesus' affirmation of the disreputable is not to be confused with the tolerance of a broad-minded humanist. It expresses the sovereign mercy of God in calling whom he will into his kingdom. Friends, Jesus flaunted the culture of his day. He flaunted the religious expectations and restriction of his day. He ate with this group of tangled sinners because he's all about transformation and he's all about multiplication. Jesus wants to extend his salvation to as many people as possible. And I'd like to suggest that's why it's so important for all of us who know him to keep the most famous verse in the Bible on the forefront of our minds. I mean, you know this verse. Some of you grew up memorizing this verse. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved all the tangled, wrangled, uh, tangled sinners of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Gilbert Belzikian uh, taught New Testament at Wheaton College in suburban Chicago back in the late 1970s on through the 80s. And Dr. B, as he was affectionately known, had a great heart for always taking the good news of the gospel to lost people. And on occasion, he could get pretty worked up about that. Uh, In one situation, uh, Dr. B was at this church out in Northern California, and he was teaching a group of pastors and ministry leaders and deacons, uh, you know, about spiritual formation and helping their church grow spiritually and everything. And he told them that it was really, really clear, if you read the New Testament, that a big part of having a church that had the heart of Jesus and lived like Jesus 
was to have a heart for lost people, for sinful people, for people who are currently far from God. Well, then one of the leaders raised their hand and asked, but isn't our church supposed to be for people like us? Well, that pushed one of Dr. B's buttons, and he got pretty amped up, and here's what he said. There are lots of churches that are only for Christians and which have no heart for the lost, and you can be like them if you want. But who's going to reach out to all the chain-smoking, wife-swapping, whiskey-drinking, tax-cheating, child-neglecting SOBs in this community? Now, as you can imagine, it got pretty quiet because people weren't used to hearing that come from the mouth of a New Testament professor from Wheaton College. And then one of the deacons raised his hands and said, you mean sons of Baptists? <laughs> Friends, Jesus has a huge heart for all of those sons of Baptists. And he wants you and me to have that kind of heart as well because he's all about transformation and multiplication. So here's a question I'm laying out for you and for me. Who's one person? Not 10 people, not five people, not four people. Who is one person who does not yet know Jesus that you're praying for regularly, that you're reaching out to and building a relationship with, and that you can invite them here to South Fellowship to church sometime in 2020? See, Jesus wants all of us here to be transformed into the men and women that he's originally made us to be. But he also wants that for all of the people that we're related to, all the people that we know, all the people out there in Englewood and Littleton and Denver, regardless of their age or their gender or their ethnicity or their sexual identity, their economic status, or even their political party affiliation. So friends, let's be friendly, let's be prayerful, let's build relationships. And then let's invite some lost non-church people to South sometime in 2020 because Jesus is all about, he's all about transformation, he's all about multiplication. He's willing to do whatever it takes to show people the love and the grace of God. That's not something that the Pharisees could sign off on. Look how they respond to Jesus. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with these guys, these tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees were the spiritual descendants of an earlier Jewish group known as the Hasidim. And two centuries before this episode, the Hasidim had stood for obedience to God's law during this horrible, horrible persecution of the Jewish people by this terrible Greek king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, the Hasidim were honored for their commitment and their endurance in the face of the persecution, and rightly so. But as time went on, as the decades turned into the centuries, the core component of Hasidic piety, which came to define the Pharisees, was the distinction between those who strictly followed all the laws and the religious traditions that had developed over that period of time 
and all of those who did not. So by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had divided Jewish society into two groups. All of those people like them, which were very, very few and far between, who followed the laws and everybody else who did not. Between the righteous in their view and the sinners. So for Jesus to be a rabbi, to preach and teach, and then hang out with a group of tax collectors? Oh, the Pharisees, this was outrageous. This was reprehensible in their eyes. Jesus was way out of bounds here. And so when they ask, why is he eating with them? It's not really a question nearly as much as it's a condemnation of him and all these tangled sinners that he's eating with. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a contemporary researcher and writer. A couple of years ago, he wrote a really, really interesting book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. He said that his research showed him that, quote, self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Ouch. Ouch. It's normal for you and me to think we're better, we're more pure, we're more righteous than everybody else around us. And that's why we condemn them when they live differently or they have different values or they act differently than we think they should. Despite the fact that in our more honest moments when we're really honest with ourselves, we realize Yeah, I still have these issues in my own life, and I still have these tangles in my own life, and actually, I'm pretty ragged too. Uh, This is Gordon McDonald. Uh, Gordon served as chancellor of Denver Seminary, where I have the privilege of teaching for the last 10 years. Uh, I've gotten to know Gordon really pretty well because we got to teach together, and I've spent a lot of time with him, and he's become a good friend. Some of you in here remember that back in the late 1990s, Former President Bill Clinton got involved in this horrible, sordid affair with his intern, Monica Lewinsky. Well, the White House put out a call to Gordon and two other Christian leaders to come to the White House and meet with former President Clinton to see if they could kind of pastor him and help him come out of this crisis. So I've talked to Gordon about that on a number of occasions and asked him what it was like. And he says, well, there were some upsides to that and there were some downsides. And I said, what were the downsides? And he says, well, the main downside was, he said, as soon as it got out that we were meeting with former President Clinton, he said, the larger evangelical community condemned all of us, condemned me. He said, people in my church condemned me for doing that. He said, people in my family condemned me and said, I don't even know if I want to be around you anymore. And he said, you know, I was just, I was just trying to get a guy that was really, really tangled up get him untangled and get him on the path to redemption. Friends, Gordon's experience and the experience that Jesus has in this story with the Pharisees raise at least two questions for you and me. And they're for me as well as for you. So let me ask them. First of all, who are we most likely to condemn? Democrats, Republicans, illegal immigrants, 
people of other racial or ethnic backgrounds, members of the trans or LGBTQ communities, rich hedge fund managers, folks who belong to other religious faiths, or the really annoying neighbor who lives down the street. Second, do we see others, especially those who from our perspective are really tangled, really messed up, really, really sinful? Do we see them through the lens of condemnation or do we see them through the possible lens of transformation? Now, I say this with all sincerity. You could really pray for me in this regard. I was raised in a good family. I lay in bed a lot of mornings, and I thank God for my mom and dad who loved me and cared for me, educated me, took good care of me, educated me. It wasn't a perfect family. It had its tangles, but it was a good family. But there was, there was a streak of condemnation that ran through our family, and that, that bled into me. I didn't grow up in church world, but the very first church that I became a part of, I rise up and I thank God for that church almost every day. That church taught me the importance of coming to worship every week, taught me the importance of reading the scripture, taught me the importance of fellowship, taught me the importance of reading the Bible, taught me the importance of giving my money. I'm so grateful for that church and what it did to me. But there was a real streak of condemnation in that church. And that seeped into me. Now, I think I'm making progress by the grace of God. But I know in this area I have a long ways to go. And that's why studying this text about how Jesus inaugurated a kingdom that's all about transformation and multiplication rather than condemnation, it's so really, really, really beneficial to me and I hope it is to you as well. And that's why I'd like to try to encourage us to remember what C.S. Lewis said in his great book, The Weight of Glory. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a whore and a corruption such as if you now met, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It's immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal whores or everlasting splendors. Friends, people matter to God. He wants them to enter his kingdom, receive his forgiveness. And over time, be transformed into the men and women that he's called them to be. That's why he's all about transformation and multiplication. It's not about condemnation. And in his response to the Pharisees' question, Jesus takes this even one step further. Look what he says in verse 17. On hearing this, this question, Jesus, why are you eating with these really sinful, tangled people? Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, Jesus simply makes a common sense observation here, and he ties it to his mission. 
Only sick people need a doctor. And so he's come to call to himself people who realize they're infected with the disease called sin. But in making this statement, he implies that the Pharisees saw themselves as the righteous, who in their own self-delusion, in their own religiosity, they cannot see that they too have a lot of tangles and sin. They can't see that in their own religious way, they're just as lost, just as far from God as all these tax collectors that they're condemning. They're spiritually blind to the transformation that Jesus came to bring. See, the core issue here, friends, is theology. Who is God? What's he really like? What's he all about? Well, what the Pharisees thought was that God was all about obedience to all the laws in the Old Testament and all the religious traditions of the elders that had developed over the years. They thought that if they did that, they would lay the foundation for the arrival of God's kingdom. And since the majority of people were never, ever, ever going to sign off on that or devote their lives to that, the Pharisees said, well, we're the spiritually righteous. And they became spiritually isolated. They sincerely believed they were the one true group of God followers. They were the righteous ones that God smiled at and liked and approved of. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins to teach about God's kingdom, that it was open to anyone and everyone who acknowledged their need of forgiveness and grace. And that teaching, that preaching about that kind of a kingdom, that totally messed with the Pharisees' theology of isolation. Now, I've read enough church history in my life to know that theologies of isolation have popped up in the history of the church over time. Recently, it popped up in a book called The Benedict Option. When this book came out about three years ago, it got a tremendous amount of publicity. And I was really excited about it because I'm a church historian and he's writing about the ancient Benedictine movement and wanted to see what he said. But here's what it says on the inside cover. Today, a new post-Christian barbarism reigns. Many believers are blind to it, and their churches are too weak to resist. Politics offers a little help in this spiritual crisis. What is needed is the Benedict option, a strategy that draws on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church. The goal? The goal? To embrace exile from mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. Well, I read the book, and apart from the fact that Dreher completely misunderstands and misinterprets the Benedictine movements of the 6th through 8th centuries, he makes some good points. He talks about the fact, he does, he makes some good points, and you know this and so do I. He talks about how overly sexualized and weird sexually our culture has become, and he's right. And he talks about the fact that technology now dominates our culture in ways that we could not have conceived of 30 years ago, and he's right. But the problem with the book, the core issue with the book, is that it's based on fear. Fear that we'll be corrupted. Fear that we'll lose our kids. Fear that everything's going down the tank. 
friends, you can't live the Christian life and follow Jesus and totally be motivated by fear. And that doesn't work in life anyway. I mean, think about it, think about it, think about it. By its very nature, life is risky, it's dangerous, and sometimes life's a little bit scary. I mean, think about this for a moment. In theory, it's a possibility that when you are out driving sometime this week or next month, you could get killed in your car. Thousands of Americans die every year in automobile accidents. When you go out to eat at Qdoba, at Chipotle, even at Ted's, in theory, you could get food poisoning. That's happened to me. That's happened to you. It probably will happen. In theory, this isn't likely now, but in theory, when you take your next plane flight, that plane flight could crash. But here's the deal. Nobody in this room is going to quit driving. Nobody in this room is going to quit eating out. And nobody's going to quit flying. Friends, we're simply not going to exile ourselves or isolate ourselves from the culture in that way. And therefore, the church should never, ever do the same either. In fact, in my opinion, the church should exemplify a theology of engagement where she puts herself and her resources on the front lines, reaching out to all the tangled and lost people all over the place. Because her Lord, our Lord, your Lord, my Lord, Jesus, he's all about transformation and multiplication. He is not about condemnation. He's not about isolation. Friends, this story in Mark chapter 2, it's revolutionary. Because it shows us that Jesus, who's God incarnate and Israel's long-awaited Messiah, invited one of the worst of the worst of the worst of ancient Jewish society to follow him as a disciple. And then he goes over and he has a big-time barbecue with all that guy's bad guy buddies in order to get them to do the same. See, this story calls for some theological reflection on all of our parts. What does this story tell us about God? What does Jesus' public action here tell us about God's heart for all of us as fallen, broken, sinfully tangled people? Is the God of the Bible a God of condemnation and isolation or is he the God of transformation multiplication about two and a half years ago Aaron was gone one Sunday and he had a good friend of his and a friend of mine Jake Gosling coming in to lead worship Jake's really really talented he's a really really good guy and he led us here in South Fellowship at a song that I had never heard before but I came to love this song I love this song because it exemplifies who our God really is and what our God is really about. It's called reckless love. And here's the chorus. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, Reckless love of God. 
friends, Jesus personifies, Jesus exemplifies, Jesus magnifies the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God because he is always about transformation and multiplication. He is not about condemnation and isolation. May every one of us here at South Fellowship by God's grace, by God's love, by God's spirit, be about the exact same things that Jesus is about. I'm going to ask us to pray together as our worship team comes back up on stage. So if you just quiet your hearts, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, which you've poured out on us in Christ. Help us to take that grace, and in the right way, at the right time, with the right person, extend that grace so that we can see your kingdom extend to more and more and more people throughout 2020 and beyond. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, may you watch over us and be with us this day. In your name we pray. Amen.